0: Trans men don't know that they're taking up space is actually valuable because we have the potential if we don't step into the snake pit of the man box and fall into that trap of what makes a good man, if you're able to model a different form of maleness and masculinity that's not a trope, then it is this sort of gentle, expansive, open experience of maleness that the world really needs. And I think, more than the world, more specifically than the world, men need that. Men want to be vulnerable.
1: You know when you were younger and you received your gender training? It wasn't called that, obviously, but that's what it was. The rules about how to be a man or how to be a lady. For boys, it would have been taught by the toys, the cartoons, by the adults in your life telling you to man up or that boys don't cry. For girls, it was a bit more layered, still very explicit. But girls are taught how to be a lady and ladylike behavior, as well as protective behaviors. How to carry your keys so that they double as a weapon. Not to walk alone at night. Cover your drink when you go out. Use the buddy system. Check your back seat. Don't live on the first floor. All kinds of rules. Just to keep us safe. And who are we teaching these girls to protect themselves from? Men. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host, slash head counselor, Mackenzie Dunham, but you can call me Mac. I know, kind of a hot start there, like, who are we talking from, men? But before we get started, a couple announcements. If you're new here, if this is your first time, I beg you to go back to the beginning and start there, like season one, episode one, or two. And listen to the parent stories. They are so helpful with that common humanity piece and helping you feel like you're not alone in this. This episode will still be here. It's great. And you'll probably end up binging and then you'll be back with us. So it'll be like you never left. Next up, I wanna make sure that you are all aware about our online communities. So we have our Facebook group that's called the Camp Wild Heart Community. Um, it's totally private. You can go online, go on a Facebook, Um, search it, fill out the form. It's like five questions, basically making sure that you actually are who you say you are and that you're here for the right reasons. And then I approve you and then you can join us. There's also a Discord server, um, also very private. You have to actually email in order to get the link to the Discord server. So the email address for that is camp at wildheartsociety.org. It's also posted in the Facebook group. So anybody who's in the Facebook group can already find it. And then third, I'm so excited about this one. We're going to have real-life Camp Wild Heart. It's at Sequist State Park in Washington State, which is about halfway between Portland and Seattle. Come unleash your wild heart, join our thriving community of families, and experience the magic of summer camp. For more information, go to wildheartsociety.org slash events slash camp. Okay, where was I? Right. <laughs> Toxic masculinity. It's more than just a buzzword. Toxic masculinity hurts all of us. I don't know how many times I've said it, but I can't understand why more men aren't pissed about it. Toxic masculinity is a narrow and repressive description of manhood that emphasizes qualities like aggression, competitiveness, and dominance. It's the idea that men should always be tough, never show vulnerability or emotion, and always be in control. It's a harmful cultural stereotype that can have negative effects on everyone, including cisgender and transgender individuals. So what does it have to do with parenting a trans kid? Well, toxic masculinity and patriarchy can manifest in many ways and can have a profound impact on your children. It can show up in the ways that we talk to our kids, the expectations we place on them, the way that we perceive gender and gender identity, the way that they perceive gender and gender identity. I don't know how many kids I've sat with over the years who are trans boys, who are exhibiting all of these incredibly toxic masculinity behaviors and I have to do a lot of re-educating and helping them realize that those are not the things that make you a man. So it's really helpful if you can also model what it is to be a man or talk about it and educate your kids so that they can experience mindful masculinity rather than toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity can lead to feelings of shame, isolation, internalized transphobia, all around, it's just, it's really not, it's not our friend. That's why today's interview with Rocco Coyotes is so important. Rocco's going to help us understand toxic masculinity, how it can affect our children, and what we can do to combat it. He'll share about his experience with gender, the work he's doing to help men let go of toxic masculinity and embrace mindful masculinity. Rocco is a musician, a poet, an actor, and an activist, His work centers around gender identity, queer liberation, and social justice. Rocco's artistry and activism have gained national attention and have made him a leading voice in the transgender community. With a passion for music and performance, Rocco has brought his powerful message to stages across the country, using his platform to inspire and empower others to embrace their true selves. I'm so excited to have him with us to talk about this important issue and how it affects us all. So, without further ado, here's the interview. Can you just start by telling me, like, how did this even? How did the intentional? What came first, the intentional man project, the the camp? Like, I'm, which I'm obsessed with. I want to know all about it. Um, but what came for? How did this come to be?
0: I mean, all this work is super personal to me. Um, I came to my own understanding of the existence of trans men in 1999. I was 19 years old. I had to go to the Women's Music Festival, which was, um, if you look it up, is historically transphobic. Um, And across the way, they had a protest camp because of their transphobic policy of not allowing trans women, or what they called women born women, I'm using air quotes, mm -hmm. um, were allowed to come to the festival. So by their definition of this antiquated second wave kind of feminism, they allowed trans men and trans masculine, which in 1999 was not a term that was used, but tra- for a, like present day, trans masculine identified people were allowed to attend this, um, this women's music festival, but trans women and trans feminine people were not. So there was a protest camp across the way called Camp Trans, And I was performing as a teenage slam poet. I went on tour with this group called Sister Spit. And Sister Spit was like an um, all-queer, mostly-woman-identified poets and writers and performers. And I um, did this two-month, straight out of high school, two-month-long tour where we did all these big cities, huge shows. And it ended at the Michigan Women's Music Festival. And then I found out about this this trans camp or camp trans across the way went there saw a trans man for the first time and was like holy fuck no (laughs) what the fuck because the way that i define myself is usually oppositionally like i can't be that okay i'm totally that yeah totally Um, uh so and i say that all because this was like predates google so i saw that man he was fully like medically transitioned um he was talking openly about surgeries he had. He was talking openly about the process. My 19-year-old mind was exploding. Like, I can't believe this is a possibility. This makes so much sense. This I can't believe I have access to this. I can't do this. It will be I'll be alienated. I'll lose all my friends, my family, my body, my livelihood. What I've got to find peace in just being like a quote unquote butch woman. Yeah. Yeah. So I left that, left the tour, went home, asked Jeeves female to male transsexual was what i googled over and over again found a uh, scant few results two of which were websites that you had to get permission from an admin to log in they had to vet who you were and then there were these disembodied pictures of like before and after pictures of surgical results oh. and then another one was tra- one was called transter and later turned into trans bucket, and then I found F to M Fitness Live Journal, which was basically like a, a Reddit thread of like trans guys like working out and talking about it. <laughs> so not unlike present day culture, just less pictures. Um, but but I didn't find a lot of possibility models or like what I call lighthouse people. And then I found Lauren Cameron's book. Um, Body Alchemy, which is a photographic kind of um, a lot of self portraiture, and then portraits of other trans men, and then little like essays that they wrote to accompany their photos. And I just became obsessed with that book. And then I was in San Francisco, couldn't find a doctor to help me move to LA. Really, like, things just started – the obsession grew, and I was like, how can I do this? I I can't live. Knowing that I have access to this, I cannot imagine not going through this. And so I transitioned in the Dark Ages, and I was a performer through the whole thing. In part, it was me trying to make sense of my own identity, so there was a bit of martyrdom there, where I thought, like, I'm going to sacrifice my own comfort and safety and transition on stage, basically – and allow that to be bigger than my art because that was the point of fascination for any type of press, media, even like fans were more interested in my transition. And also arguably, I mean, my music was largely about what I was going through at the time and I was going through changing everything in my life, like uprooting literally everything to get my brain and my body to align in this way that, um, that a big gift of performing through that was one i was a possibility model accidentally and i was on literally on a stage showing people that they had the possibility to change their lives in this way and at the time it was really not cool. Like queer people weren't into it. A lot of my community of queer women were like, this is weird. I don't get it. You can't come to this bar anymore. You can't be in this space. You can be in this space, which dismantles your identity, like women's only spaces. Like everyone was playing out their own relationship to gender on my literal body because I was their only, you know what I mean? And I was a lot of people's only because of the nature of my career that I was, you know, um, a musician and quote unquote public figure for the queer community. So a lot of like discourse happened on my body. And I, I promise I'll tie all of this together. What you. The, the gift of um, <laughs> the gift of performing in this for this community in this specific way was that I would go to these small towns. And I would see three trans people and the next year I would return and there was six, nine, 12. And it just kept compounding over the 14 years that I performed and toured. And that led me to realize that creating space is the most valuable thing that we can do. And and creating representation, though not everybody's going to align with me, just the fact that I exist, even if they see me and they hate me because it brings up all this shit for them. That just the mere, like, seeing me happily living my life can be such a provocative thing for someone means that it's valuable, right? And so for me, it was that space. And so then later, I started a magazine with a good friend of mine called Original Plumbing. It ran for 10 years. Original Plumbing was the only print magazine that was a a quarterly print magazine dedicated to trans male culture, trans male culture and stuff is what the tagline was. <laughs> and stuff. I don't know what the stuff was. But um but it ran from 2009 to 2019. It's published in a coffee table book and the revolution of that was that it wasn't focused on people's trans identities. And then the, the piece that was most exciting to me was that we created physical spaces for people. So we would have OP parties and we would move them around the country. We did a couple outside of the country and people would come in mass and 75% of the people attending were trans masculine people. And then the, the other 25% were, you know, allies. So it was this space where we were the majority and I had never been in a space like that before.
1: That's incredible.
0: It was. It was magic, right? So there was no othering. There's no like, you can't be in this space. It was our space. And it was really beautiful that we managed to cover out, uh, carve out this physical and digital space of owning the narrative of our own lives and allowing... And then Original Plumbing created a platform where people wanted to share and own their own narratives, which was this beautiful kind of cycle of us taking control of who we were and the nice thing is it was an art book and it was beautifully done so um, so cis gay men loved it and then they wanted to <laughs> write about us and then we were in the New York Times and then we became like a very like noteworthy kind of population of new men, quote unquote, that because the external gaze then came back and was like, oh, you're a valid person. Um, so we had created this nice little niche for ourselves of celebration celebration, and, um, and upliftment. And then the external gaze kind of came back and and validated the whole thing. And so all that is to say then what later led to the creation of camp, Camp Lost Boys, which is a camp for men of trans experience over the age of 18. And we have uh, two pre-COVID, we were having... One meetup in California every year, and another that moved location so that it would be affordable and accessible to guys outside of the West Coast. And the age range of attendance is like 18 to men well into their 70s, men who haven't started testosterone, haven't started any sort of like physical um, transition, maybe never are going to go through any type of medical transition to like people who have been on T for 30 plus years. So it's this beautiful, safe, sacred space of just men having that experience. And it was through that that I realized that, you know, I had always sort of identified as a man-hating man, which gets me a lot of like street cred, basically. (laughs) People are like, yeah, you're down, you get it. And then it was at that first camp that I looked around and I was like, these men are so beautiful. There was this moment of like seeing this, uh, there was a kid who came who turned 18 the first day of camp so he had written preemptively and was like i'm only 17 but i'll be 18 the day that camp starts um literally and then he was there and he hadn't begun his medical transition and he was like surd and heed the entire time without question, which watching what that did for his self esteem, he came in hunched over, like very curled into himself. And by the end of those three days, he was walking upright, like at the swim party with his shirt off, hadn't had top surgery, was just like out there, had made all these friends. It was so beautiful to watch that transformation. And then seeing like this big dude, burly, burly ginger haired beard um, bear who was like in army fatigues making a friendship bracelet like just like you know and watching the camp transform uh, the camp Uh, staff transform around their relationship because these are like mountain folks that run these campgrounds uh, watching their relationship to these men. And then at the end of it, I was like, how can I hate men if I see all of these men and I love them immediately? And it led to me really spiraling into this like deeper investigation of like, what is it costing me to hold this hatred for a whole half of our population? How can I look at this with more compassion? And more nuance. And it was then that I like really went on this quest to kind of like unmoor myself from this narrative of quote unquote toxic masculinity and realize that there are systems in place that do damage to all people, including cis men, including like cis white straight men, the man. They're enmeshed in this system that also harms them and they don't know. Because, you know, well, privilege is a privilege. You don't have to think about it. If you don't know that it's happening, then there's no way for you to know that it's a privilege, right? So I realized I read every masculinity book that I could find um, over the next like two And a half years, And I had already been like reading some and I was in some men's groups, but I joined other men's groups and I read all the books. I read, you know, Thomas Page McBee because it was like a trans masculine perspective on quote unquote toxic masculinity. I read Liz Plank, Chloe Stiller, uh, all of the like old school mythopoetic men's movement literature, like read it all, read about like 30 books. And then I realized the common theme for all of them was diagnosis and discourse, and there was no problem solving. Like, there's individual moments of problem solving, but there is no kind of, like, template. Like, if you're a man, a cis man, cis white straight man, uh, enmeshed in and deeply entrenched in patriarchal masculinity, how do you even begin to do the work to untether yourself from that?
1: Yeah. I've said over and over again, I, I... It, blows me away that cis het white men are not furious about the patriarchy because it really is killing them.
0: Literally, right? Yeah. I mean, suicide rates are like the easiest kind of quantifiable statistic to point to. Or I just read another study about the loneliness and alienation of men and how it's only gotten worse during quarantine. And then part of that is because they don't know how to relate to other – they don't know how to have friendships outside of quote-unquote like activity partners. So I just think like how how do men heal? And I love – all of the attempts that these men's groups are starting like every man or um, well, let me say I, I like the attempt of every man. I don't mm-hmm. love sacred sons um, is another one that I'm a little like, it's not about wrestling each other in the desert like that's not for <laughs> that's an not Instagram photo. that's not it but every man's trying. but the thing is like every man is also started by a cis straight white man who, has the best intentions, but doesn't really get it because it's like you can be an ally to things, but I think there's a section in the, the Mindful Masculinity Workbook written by uh, Wade Davis who talks about the difference between allyship and solidarity work. And it's that next piece of unlocking that that is like, yeah, if you're not willing to like give up some of your privilege and comfort to be able to take a deeper look at how you're the beneficiary of things that actually are doing harm to you. So you have a better job, you have a better, quote unquote, better life under the guise of like American kind of standards of what a good life makes, but you're still alienated in deep pain, only receive your value from your paycheck. Like all of these things are doing harm to these men and they don't, they don't realize that it's just one big system that's keeping them trapped too. Yeah. 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 So I think the first step for me was um, removing the language of toxic masculinity from my own lexicon and just deeming it as problematic. So there's problems with masculinity. There's problems with femininity. There's problems with gender binary. But it doesn't mean that all of these things deem cancellation. And I think that we're living in a culture and a time that's so quick to just literally cancel things that don't align with our belief. Instead of taking what we like and leaving the rest and trying to make incremental change, right, yeah, yeah, yeah
1: I agree with you there. It's one of the scary things about being a, a public person, right is like I'm oh yeah, like one wrong thing, and I'm out there's very little room for growth, yeah, and I've talked about my own nonbinariness as something that like i that's it is how I think about things, right, so I, this idea that we would just cancel something from in my brain is like, what are we doing, right, and like there's always room for some level of conversation you got to find the find the leverage part like let's have the talk
0: I know I think that the conversation with gender specifically is is the conversation to end something right like when when we have the like battle cry is end the binary or end, end gender then I just think by nature that doesn't allow for a non-binary experience because something has to end for something else to be, that doesn't, like, it doesn't match up for me. So I just think, why not expand? Expand gender. In the 20 plus years that I've been in this trans identity, I just see more and more language come and more and more additions to the never-ending LGBTQ plus identity sphere. And I think, doesn't that just shouldn't the cry be expand, expand our like literally expand everything, expand gender, expand uh gender expectations, expand you know, um, I just think the expansion expand compassion, so what does that look like in in like if we're really gonna do the deep and difficult work individually and collectively, we have to like dethaw and deprogram some of this systemic Bullshit that exists unconsciously in us, even as conscious, like queer, liberal, forward-thinking people, that hatred of men was keeping me from being like a fully functioning person in a lot of ways, and it was keeping me, most specifically and personally, it was keeping me from loving myself and receiving myself as male fully.
1: With camp, Lost Boys, I think that camp is one of the most magical things a person can experience. Um, but that is why this is called camp wildheart. And what do you think it is about about just camp in general like why do we need to go into the mountains to be able to do this? Do you know what I mean?
0: I mean what is it for you personally?
1: For me it's about a change of environment allows for a change of like it gets me out of my rhythm, it gets me out of like the comfort zone, like I'm already out of it so I can it's I think it's easier to to try new things and it's easier to be vulnerable and i'm not wearing everybody's expectations that are around me all the day all day every day and i can just try different things and if i fall flat on my face that's okay and you can be braver at camp like there's just opportunity like it's set up for you to experience vulnerability and bravery
0: yeah did you go to camp as a kid
1: oh yeah (laughs) I did. I grew up in a really, really, really religious home. Um, like every man in my family is a minister, and so I went to religious camps pretty much my entire life. Um, and they were still phenomenal. Like I still like love the experience of camp, even like even if I don't take the religion part with me. Right? Like I'm not canceling camp. I'm just not taking <laughs> just not taking that part with me. And then I worked at camps um, through college. Uh, I worked for a camp, and I just didn't like. Trans kids need to go to camp. Uh, this is a thing that needs to be able to happen. And camp so Camp
0: Brave Trails, do you do you know about that camp? There's a bunch of trans camps for kids.
1: There are there are a bunch of trans camps for yeah. kids. And as I'm venturing further in, like I've connected with an organization called Summer 365 that is um their whole intention is matching families with camps. Um cool. that are <laughs> right. Uh and so we're developing a way to um, help camps be more gender inclusive and like, that's awesome. Yeah. And so it's super exciting. Um, cause as much as I would love to run my own camp, right? Like
0: yeah, me it too. would be so
1: much better if everybody else would do it too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you touch on, on the biggest piece for me. I didn't go to camp growing up and it was really roundabout and accidental that I ended up starting this camp. I think I just wanted to be in space with, other trans men. And I think specifically, sometimes people are, uh, we've had mixed reactions of people getting upset that the camp is such a narrow focus and a narrow identity that is allowed to attend it. But it was very intentional. And it's because there's literally no other space that exists that is exclusively for men of trans experience. And it's really important for All that attend, and for myself as a man of trans experience, that the space only belongs to trans men. Because when in the larger trans community, trans men, especially trans men of a binary experience, are often asked to make themselves small, be quiet, and make room. And it's that opening night when I tell them, you don't have to worry about anyone misgendering you. You don't have to worry about the discomfort, the inherent discomfort that comes with having undergone so much to be seen as a man and then have someone ask you, you know, because they need it or because we've gotten to a place in culture, what are your pronouns? The the level of dismantling that can happen for a person's identity when they're asked that question is huge, right? It's as mm-hmm. big as being misgendered, basically. It is this like, it, you know, and I don't know if there, there's a better way to – integrate pronouns generally. We're in this rough era where binary trans people can have the experience of feeling uncomfortable when that question. When we do the roundabout and a binary trans person, especially if they haven't like started passing full time or like aren't read as their gender all the time, whoo, it sends you down a spiral where you're like, there's literally no safe space. So it's that small thing, which is a huge thing. I just say to them, like, this is your space. You don't have to worry about making room. Be kind to each other. And know that everyone's doing their best, even when it looks like trash, that's their best. Give them the benefit of the doubt. No calling each other out. It's not a political war. We're here to just have fun as kids. And that's it. It's the freedom piece, right? Freedom. Camp is like ultimate freedom. So I request that everyone stay substance free. I'm not sure if they do. Um, I request. (laughs) They they don't tell me because I'm the camp counselor. So nobody's telling me anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I used to be fun. Now I'm a cop. Um, Mm -hmm. I know how that uh, goes. So so (laughs) there's no substances. And there's no uh, counselors, there's no rules, and there's no social media. And people really adhere to it. They tuck their phones away, and they are fully present with each other. And I think there are so few spaces for adult, queer, or trans people to be where it's not focused around consuming alcoholic beverages and having a party, where it's just – Being with each other in this expansive space. And so the space, literally the camp space, like the space that we create with Camp Lost Boys, and then the actual physical space that is the setting of Camp Lost Boys is all about accessing that joy and that freedom of childhood. And then you compound that from most of the trans guys who are 18 plus didn't have trans services, or a trans youth. Right, Because this is a new kind of thing of, of seeing children as being valid in their yeah. self-identification. It yeah. didn't exist while I was growing up. So we're all sort of reclaiming this childlike joy and this boyhood that we didn't have collectively. And then we're like having these deep conversations about like, what is it like 15 years on hormones? And those conversations don't happen either. So it's like there's this value specific to Camp Lost Boys That is like that reclamation of childhood, joy, and freedom, coupled with deep conversations that can be life-changing, life-altering, life-saving, and a deep sense of brotherhood and pride in maleness, which does not exist in the larger queer community because everyone fucking hates men. So if you're a queer person, by and large, I know this is a sweeping generalization, but- (laughs) You know, by and large in the queer community, people aren't like, yay, we love men. So if you're (laughs) like coming to your trans male identity, you're like, oh, maybe I'm not actually a man. I'm just trans masculine because there's this layer of fear of rejection that exists now that didn't exist 20 years ago when I came to my maleness. There wasn't an option. It was like genderqueer was an emerging term. And That was about it. And I knew that my gender wasn't queer. I knew that I felt male. But had there been this like more pervasive kind of insidious undercurrent of a shared collective dislike for men or being in this era where there's this giant spotlight of all men are toxic, men are bad, um, then that narrative might have disrupted my own understanding of self. And I've had a couple folks tell me that they came to camp having a transmasculine non-binary identity, but really wanting to explore and understand what it meant for them to be a man and that they were able to drop some of that off. And then they were able to take it back to their community and say, this space healed me because their friends preemptively were like, that's a toxic space. It's only men. So there's this idea that just because it's men gathering that inherently it's toxic. And then they came back and they said it was the most vulnerable, gentle space I have ever been a part of. Everyone was kind. And I want to, I'll pride myself on this. I have thrown parties. I have thrown events. I've been doing all kinds of work like this, of creating space for queer people, for at least 20 years, and I have never had such a complicated set of taking care of needs from dietary to sleeping to health, having to think literally to to the logistics of um, getting people to be able to travel to a remote location, to making sure that everyone's safe as a trans person in this remote location. I've never had such a compounding, complicated, logistical uh, jigsaw puzzle uh, as this camp. And there has never been an issue. No one has had an issue with each other. And there's 100 to 150 men that gather for sleeping together, sharing quarters for three nights and four days, and no one's had any type of conflict, which is just like –
1: That's amazing.
0: So if anyone's thinking that this is a toxic space, it's like, oh my God, it's so gentle, so loving. Everyone's holding each other. Trans masculine culture and trans male culture is helper culture. So I just think that when we're all together, we're like, is everyone okay? Someone's like, does someone have a lighter? And they're literally tripping over each other
1: i got i got one, i got go, go. I'm going exactly. somewhere. Hold on. I carry them on me just in case. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, you got it. Oh, okay. You got it. You got it's it. Good.
1: Okay, good. Does it work? Yeah, okay, okay.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly,
1: yeah. mhm. <laughs> see that a lot. That's fun, um so I'm curious, so how, you went from camp that was first and then intentional man project or mindful masculinity what like what was the stream, and what came next?
0: yeah, mindful masculinity, I was like, i'm after reading my twenty third book or something, I was like, i'm gonna just take what I know and and ask people that I admire. Who also are engaged in some of this work around like um, dismantling patriarchal ideas of masculinity and white supremacy and thinking about intersectional feminism. And I'm gonna ask them to contribute to this workbook. And so, from idea, like a seed of an idea, to just making it, working with the designer to make it look pretty and then self printing, I think there was like a time lapse of like five months. So, I just like banged it out super quick. I don't think I think that it's like brass tacks, but I should say I've also been doing this work on some level for like, you know, two decades where I used to teach at colleges like trans cultural competency lessons in the. Early 2000s, which was not a thing that was happening, which is why a white, straight, cis passing trans guy was leading those workshops. That's why I also retired because there were enough people doing DEI and uh, cultural trainings that um, were more suited or more intersectional than my own identity, teaching those workshops uh, for and about trans and non binary identities. But I think that, you know, a lot of those, a lot of the exercises come from the exercises that I would hold in colleges where I would go around the room and ask people to think about like what makes them the gender that they believe they are. And the purpose of that that question specifically is if you take your body away and you take your social the social cues and constraints and ideology away of what makes gender, how do you know you're the gender that you believe yourself to be? And so when you ask a man that, it's like he has to strip everything away that gives him power. So he basically has to take the power suit off and then he's a blob on a plate and he has to say what makes him a man, right? But when you ask a room full of people that who haven't struggled with or thought about their gender in complicated ways, the the use for that is less about getting stripping you down and more stripping it down to like, okay, so how do you expect a trans person to quote unquote prove that they are who they say they are when you can't do it yourself and you've thought about it even less than they have? which most trans people can write a full dissertation on what makes them the gender they know they are, you know? Yeah. But, but cis people don't have to think about it. They're, you know, most of the time the answer is like, I like guns. So I'm a guy, or, you know, I can have, I can give birth. So I'm a woman, like all those things are just like, okay, but then what's the layer deeper. And I think that it's an invitation. The, the book itself was in uh, the first kind of offering to like, to men and masculine people to think more deeply and critically about self examining how engaged they are with patriarchal ideas of what makes a man. And I think it's interesting. And then COVID happened. So I was planning a retreat for cis and trans men to be together in this space. And then COVID happened. So that went out the window. Camp was paused. And then I brought everything online. And once I published the book and it sold really well with very little promotion and, um, I started holding these cohorts of a dozen men and masculine identified people to be in space doing the workbook together. And the first couple cohorts were like, oh my God, it was such a broad swath of identities. Equal cis and trans, trans transmasculine folks, as well as binary trans men, um, cis straight men of color. Um, And they were all so vulnerable with each other. And I saw these like cis straight men of color, like breaking down and crying and talking about how it didn't just transform their relationship to maleness, but it also expanded their ideas of what makes gender just generally and broadly. And um, I I hope that once we figure out what's next for real life spaces, my hope is to continue to try and um, do that initial real life kind of retreat of cis and trans men together, because I think that there's a missing opportunity there with Trans men in the larger queer community, and the larger narrative of uh, how much like this idea that we have finite amounts of space, trans men are often, you know, um, shrinking in in their representation. I think you can even just look at Hollywood and see that trans women are having their moment. And when Laverne Cox had that trans tipping point, it only tipped so far because where are the trans men? It's like if Elliot Page didn't transition who else is literally who else is there? L- there's literally no one. And I think the missed opportunity is that not all trans men, I'm not saying all trans men are like incredible. A lot of trans men fall into the pitfalls of the patriarchy too. But um, but there is this opportunity for us to bridge the experience of men of trans experience to be that bridge for cis men to think more deeply and critically about their own maleness. And then transform masculinity holistically. So that feels like the next kind of iteration of, of what moves me.
1: Yeah. I'm sitting here, my brain is, again, going everywhere. And I'm, I've got this question that's stirring in my head that I'm likely going to ask really badly. Um, I have noticed this as well, right? That trans women are very um, visible right now. Um, but not so much trans men. Um, and having worked with an, a lot of trans men and trans boys, this work that has to be done at some point um, or doesn't have to be done, but sort of called out around for for trans men like to like shed the socialization of being an AFAB person because AFAB people are really raised to be invisible and small,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. And so... At some point, they either have to like consciously shed that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I find that that is a point in which we see a lot of the quote unquote toxic masculine behavior show up Mm -hmm. um, or they don't and they just continue to be small
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: and feel isolated, lonely, invisible, Mm -hmm. all of the Mm -hmm. really shame inducing feelings.
0: Yeah. There's your rite of passage into manhood, right? Now you're isolated. You're small. You have no emotional. You did uh, it. (laughs) (laughs) You have to suffer in silence. Otherwise, you're Mm -hmm. a soggy bottom baby. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I hear you. And I think I say this, um, and I, I, I think that sometimes it's an unpopular thing to say at this point, but just to acknowledge that I was socialized with a female set of socialization I was taught that my ideas were less valuable that I should listen more than I should speak and I'm a person of the mouth as you can tell over these past 45 minutes of talking I love it um but I think like yeah I mean I'm 20 I hit 21 years um on T, 22 years on T in January and I thought to myself and I'm 42 so more than half of my life I have been on testosterone and I thought to myself I think that I finally, like, quote unquote, fully transitioned to male because I'm not afraid to take up space anymore because I know that me taking up space isn't taking away from anyone else because I also know that all of the things that make me a person, like a good person, not just a good man, are – that I am consciously aware of outliers in conversations or communities and that I pull them into the fold, that I make room for other people, that I empower and encourage other people to use their voice and to share their experience. And all of those things that make me a good person are seen as like exponentially better when it's coming from a man because men are seen as ungenerous. But I just think trans men don't know that they're taking up space is actually valuable because we have the potential if we don't step into the snake pit of a, you know the man box and fall into that trap of what makes a good man and then just exit the queer community. Because I see a lot of like binary, cis, straight-passing trans men leave the queer community because they don't want to deal with it. But I just think if you're able to model a different form of maleness and masculinity that's not a trope, then it is this sort of gentle, expansive, open experience of maleness that the world really needs. And I think more than the world, more specifically than the world, men need that. Men want to be vulnerable. And I, I don't know what it's going to take for, I'm so curious when you take, if you've taken or shared with uh, young trans boys pieces of that workbook, what is like, what do they, what do they do? what kind of behavior do they fall into? And I, obviously you don't have to share any of this, but I'm just curious, like what do you see as common sort of like ways that young trans boys are moving into their maleness in a problematic way?
1: Well, uh, one thing that I need to do differently, I think um, is that I've only really brought it out when I'm seeing toxic masculinity and I, and just in this conversation, I'm like, I really should just do this with everybody. Like, this should just be part of, like, every man I work with should, should we should do this with. Um, and, so, thanks for that. <laughs> everybody who's my client, get ready. Um, and, um, with that, I will also say that, like, you know, the biggest aha for a lot of boys as we do this and we're kind of going through it um, is is almost like they give themselves permission to reclaim things that they abandoned about their upbringing or about what they thought or saw as feminine and that they've been afraid to hold on to because they think people aren't going to think that I'm a man if I do this. Um, People are going to think that I can't, you know, X, Y, Z because that's something that girls do. And a lot of it is like crying, um, feeling um, holding hands with people, um, knitting along with, you know, makeup and nail polish and skirts and like long hair and like all the really fun things that they loved about their socialization and upbringing, but they just like toss it all aside. Like I've seen boys just can't even look at it until they feel finally valid or validated as a man. Like everybody, nobody's misgendering them anymore. They have like enough facial hair that people sort of like cues people, right? Oh, dude, got it, all right. Um, and that's when they'll start to bring that stuff back in historically. Um, but when I do this with them, uh, when I walk them through my Mindful Masculinity, like I see that come back a lot faster. Mm. Um, and I see them going, oh, I didn't realize there was another way to do this. Right, um, which I think is just amazing. Sometimes boy, <laughs> one of the fun ex- funnest experiences that some of my boys have been having lately is like being accused of mansplaining things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And they're like, I got accused, me? Yeah. I got accused of doing this like thing that like, I, like nobody would have accused me of that last year. Nobody, right? Like, and at the same time, I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about why that showed up and how like, What does that mean, right? And sort of like rebalancing how they need to walk through the world in order to be respectful of other people around them as well, right?
0: Yeah. There's no blueprint for this. And I think that like, as you were talking, the beginning of what you're saying, I I started thinking like, oh, the same is true for like young boys, cis boys, like, they reach a certain age, and it's no longer appropriate for them to be affectionate with their other boyfriends. They can't have like, sleepovers and cuddle where like, kids just have... They don't have the same sort of rules. This goes back to why camp is great. There's no rules for like ha- of operation. There's no rules for engagement. You just get to be a person who's unrestricted and has natural loving tendencies towards others. And I think that, you know, the patriarchy chips away at all genders and it, it keeps us separate from each other. It keeps us separate from ourselves, from our authentic nature I'm gonna sound like a California woo-woo hippie, but like that authentic nature, I think at its purest form for most people is just love, right? It's self-love, it's love for others, it's love for the collective. And the fact that love has been deemed as um feminine is tragic to me. Yeah. That is like great the greatest thing. tragedy that we're not supposed to love ourselves or each other. That's also capitalism and all of its white supremacy. So all of these systems are the problems. And our human function is that we're trying to pinpoint a cell in the larger body of the problem, instead of see that if we upended patriarchy, patriarchal expectations, um, and rules for engagement, then all genders are freed up from having these constraints around us. And then men are no longer the recipients of power in the same way because they're lovingly, expansively opening things up and recognizing that you can't just invite someone to have a seat at the table. You have to invite them to use their voice while they're sitting at the table. And then you have to hear that their voice is just as valid or valuable as your own white, cis, straight, male voice, right? And I don't know, like, it just, we need to encourage a, a culture of more empathy. And I think at the core, that's what the book is, just an invitation towards more empathy, really. Um, it's wonderful. And it starts starts with yourself, right? I'm, like, mm-hmm. deep into this work and my own therapy of, like, um, inner child work, which I was, like, ugh, gross, the inner child. <laughs> that thing's dead. But then I was, like, oh, my God, why can't I give myself compassion at this, like, deep core level? So that's that's the next the next block for me to move. A workbook will not be coming out of it. But I do think that, like, (laughs) as we're talking, though, I'm like, you know, um, you're not the first therapist to say that they've used this with trans boys and young trans masculine folks. And I just think maybe, you know, some of the stuff is a a bit more adult than is appropriate for someone who's under 15 or under, like, sexual activity age, because there is a big part of, like, sexual inventories in there. But I think that, like... I, I think I I'll would just skip love that section. Usually, good job, good boys.
1: job. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to this like in a couple of years.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I, I do think there is like uh, value in teaching them about consent, right? Yeah, so it's yeah, less, yeah, yeah. Less that. So I think like maybe the next iteration of this is like a trans boys um, uh, workbook specifically. And as you're talking to, I'm like, you. Know, part of the reason I had Camp Lost Boys as 18 plus is because there's so many services for youth. And um, my next kind of – I just quit my job, and I'm thinking a lot about how do we create a mentorship program like Big Brother, Big Sister for, like, trans elders and trans youth because it would – Oh, my God. It would be – I wrote to Big Brother, Big Sister in 2020, and they never responded to me. I tried really hard to get in touch with them about, like, can I help lift up the trans version of this as under your umbrella since it's so widely recognized? But I'm sure they're, like, Christian-run or something.
1: Something. I don't know. Um, I'm going to, he's not going to endorse you for that.
0: Yeah. Cause trans, uh, trans elders want to be in touch with trans youth. And I think there's, you know, this is a whole other conversation, but aging as a trans person is not something that anyone has really thought about. And it's starting to emerge as a really urgent kind of topic of how, how do we take care of trans elders? Cause we have this like first big cohort of transitioned elders who are in their 70s and 80s and no one's taking care of them. So,
1: Yeah, you're so spot on with this. And this is a conversation that I've had with I don't know how many people, right? Like, um, even as I work with trans men in their 20s and 30s, they're still like, I wish that I knew older trans men, right? Like, I need that representation. I need somebody to like, take me by the hand and be like, we're gonna, it's gonna be okay. Um, And they, they're just like hungry for it in so many different ways. and
0: That's a great part of camp too. It's so intergenerational, like so intergenerational. But then it only happens twice a year. It's cost prohibitive for some people. And it's like, you know, capped at 200 people total for the year, 200 to 300 people. So I keep trying to think about like, how do I scale this and and make it available for on, on a much larger scale for more people that need it? Um We'll see. Yeah. Anyway, trying to solve you, the world's problems.
1: You make it, and I'll be there. Exactly. Uh, can I just ask you For one sure. more question before of we course, wrap up? Yeah. Um, as parents are going to listen to this, right? And they want to instill in their kids how to be mindful or intentional men, what do you recommend that they do? Hmm.
0: I'm not a parent, so I'll couch this in that. But I think that as when I think holistically about change and movements and compassion and mindfulness, I think that with parents, a good starting point is investigate to investigate how you contribute to your children's Ideas of what makes a man or a masculine person. So, are there overt or covert cues, rules, or restrictions that you're putting on your child's gender identity? So, in a few words, be expansive and exploratory, be curious without condemnation and give them space, love, and empathy, and more expanse, just like more expansiveness. And you have to do that for yourself. Mm -hmm. So you you have to start with yourself. Otherwise, it's just going to be this false start where you're constantly having to reset because it's not authentic. So mind your own relationship to problematic gender roles and restrictions and go from a place of of um, allowing, I think. Yeah. I'll say this too. My parents did many bad parenting things, <laughs> but the one unequivocal good parenting thing that happened from both of them was they allowed me to be without restriction. So which is, you know, good and bad once I got to my teen years. But, sure. <laughs> but being the person I am, they never made me feel like there was anything wrong with who I was. They never told me, girls don't do that, boys do this. There was never any of that. Um, I also grew up in the 80s and my dad was a stay-at-home dad, which was really non-traditional at the time. But it also it gave me permission and an understanding that, like, there weren't, gender roles and expectations. Really, because my mom worked and my dad stayed home. And when I as like a four year old saw my dad shaving every morning, and I said, I want to try, he knocked a blade out and let me just shave with him every morning. He wasn't like, No, that's bad. It's like, you just like, you have to be really aware, I think as a parent being really aware, pretty consistently is, is, is key. And also kids try things on, so you don't need to get anchored to something just because they're trying something on, um, even if that's, like, a full other gender. Like, don't anchor to it. Just remain curious and open and follow their lead. Don't go off the deep end. Like, create good structure and parameters, but, but like, just be curious and compassionate and supportive.
1: Yeah, just that's all. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's why i'm not having kids <laughs> <laughs> i have kids and it is
1: it. yeah i have my kids are eight and ten and my son is um i watched him go through the oh i can't wear that color um you know i had to ditch my sparkle hair clips um he still rocks long hair um and gets misgendered constantly but um but there's still very clearly like a, a limit there's like a line Right, and he got hurt this week um, at camp, <laughs> of all places. Um, and I asked him about it. I said, "How did it go?" Uh, and he was like, "It was, it hurt really bad." But um, I didn't cry, and I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> right? And he's like, "He, he, he's got me as a parent." Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and this is something that I feel like we've been talking about and working on for a long time, but it just continues. Like it's, it's ne- you're never done.
0: Yeah right what's your the, advice to parents in this situation
1: a very similar um you have to start with yourself you have to start doing your own work and you have to um one of the first things I ask parents often is to do a gender journey um to write their own um and the story of their gender and how they came to be where they're at cool. um and then I often will take parents through Um, Daring Greatly, I'm certified in Brene Brown's work, and so um, I take them through Daring Greatly with the arena and the target of, um, we just talk all about the vulnerability and shame associated with being the parent of a trans kid. And um, that has been magical. So, but in terms of like embracing that vulnerability, learning how to have an empathy practice um, and show up for your kid and understand how identity is, the number one trigger of sh- unwanted identity is the number one trigger of shame.
0: Mm. So what a beautiful um, practice though, for t- providing that space. Cause I think the other thing too, and I know that this conversation has gone long, but I, I think that <laughs> the, the other thing that they always do for me, um, the other key thing is that, you know, there's a, there's more and more resources for trans folks and those that are transitioning or are, uh, have transitioned. Um, but there, I haven't seen the resources grow in tandem for those that are intimate um, family members of trans people. Parent, child, sibling, partner, romantic partner, housemate, literally no resources exist for people who are going through that transition with people. And I think by nature, you know, if you have a queer kid, then you're queer. You have your you have a queer family. Yep, there it is. Family. You can't right. opt out unless you decide to disown your child. Um, if you have a queer, if you have a trans sibling, then you're in relationship with a trans person, and you're transitioning too. Yep, and there's that's what I say.
1: As, I Say the whole family transitions.
0: You have to. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just a blocker to this person's happiness and success as a person. Yeah. Right.
1: Which ultimately creates stress for the whole family.
0: Fully, yeah. Right, because the whole then it, family starts oh, to like yeah. have dysfunction. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. I think like my my mom and my dad did it differently. There were no resources for me or for them at that point in 1999 or 2000 when I was trying to explain it to them. Boys Don't Cry came out maybe a year after I started my transition, and they were, and I was on a touring musician, so they were like, "You're going to get murdered in a bathroom. You can't do this." that was my dad the my fear, dad was like fear, yeah. i remember as a boy when Christine jorgensen came back from war as a woman and that was weird and did all of that and then a young trans woman was really brutally murdered in um in the east bay and i was living in the bay area and i was at my dad's house and it was like it was my birthday when they found her body gwen arroyo and he was like that's going to happen to you and i was like I don't know what to tell – this is like me saving my life because I don't want to – I can't imagine a future for myself where I'm not a man. So this is it. And get on board or not and we're 22 years in and he still misgenders me and uses my old name where I'm just like, come on, papa, get, get it together. You're saying your daughter and I'm like a fully bearded, grizzly, tattooed <laughs> little toughie. Nobody sees your daughter. And my mom seamlessly switched over not once did she misgender me, not once did she use my old name, she was more advanced than I was in some ways. I remember seeing one of her friends out. And she said, the woman said, who's this with you? And I had been about two years on to testosterone at that point. And she said, this is my son. And the woman has been her friend and a family friend for two decades. And she was like, I felt myself like, Oh, God, don't say I'm your son, you know, and then the woman was like, you don't have a son. You have twin daughters. And she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've always had a son. And this is like hindsight. I'm like, that's so Beautiful In the moment, I was like, what are are you you doing? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, just say I'm your nephew. And she was like, I'll never say you're my nephew. You're my son and I'm proud of you. And she just played it off. Like, the woman kept going like, no, you've always had twin girls. She's like, you're a drunk. You don't know anything. Like, she just (laughs) went full into it in this way that, like, I didn't realize that was, like, modeling perfect parenting. Because she was there before I was there. Like, it was really just, like, it's the difference between tolerance and acceptance and my dad learned to tolerate things and my mom always accepted me and it was really beautiful to get that and for me that's why I feel like I'm resourced enough to continue to provide resources for other people who aren't resourced in the same way yeah yeah
1: you're such a gift I'm so excited um like about I do you don't know it but we're best friends now um and (laughs) I mean, I can't um, wait to
0: collaborate with you.
1: I'm so excited. You have beyond no the idea. Podcast, yeah, beyond the podcast, we'll be talking about groups. We'll be talking about yeah. all kinds of things we can do together. Yeah, uh, mentorship a, programs, connecting I, youth with uh, elders, because that's so needed.
0: Yeah, uh, providing resources gonna... for trans for parents of trans and non-binary kids.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the book I'm writing right now.
0: Oh God, I love it.
1: The it's the guidebook for parents. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Parents get one, kids get one, and then they have one they work on together.
0: Oh my God. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. I can't so, wait to hear all about that.
1: Well, you'll get to hear all about it. I'm super excited. Well, because we're new best friends. That's right. We are. <laughs> I told Perfect. like five people before, like at two o'clock today and 10 o'clock today, I was like, I'm going to do this interview this afternoon and I, I'm going to make him my best friend. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah, It worked. Thanks
1: so much, Rocco, for yeah, real. Yeah, thank you so
0: much. Thanks for yeah. having me. Thanks for letting me dither my way to the point.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it was every every word was worth it. And that's a wrap on our interview with Rocco Kayadis. I really hope you found this conversation informative and thought-provoking. Toxic masculinity and patriarchy can have a significant impact on our children and their experiences. But it's not always easy to identify or combat that's why i'm so grateful to rocco for sharing his thoughts his insights and his experiences with us today just a wee reminder that here at camp wildheart listeners and counselors we're all here to support you don't be a stranger you can reach out to us at camp at wildheartsociety.org or find us on social media on our instagram we are wild.heart.society our private facebook group is called the camp wildheart community Thanks again for showing up, here and for your kids. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss future campfires. And give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps people find us. And we want to make sure that everyone who needs one knows there's a bunk for them at Camp Wildheart.